Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by Elec 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I get to ask. I'm so excited. Did you watch well, I'm, the I'm, first I'm Thursday night of Amazon football? I thought you were going to ask about disclaimers first. No. But I wasn't paying attention, so I don't know how many disclaimers they did. <laughs> Look, I'm, ge- I'm guessing that we got at least one, maybe two. We'll check on that. We'll get back to them. But I was more curious about whether or not you stayed up. I know you didn't watch the whole game. I mean, come on, that's not realistic. But did you find the football game on Amazon? It's the Chargers playing. Maybe a little interest there? I'm, I'm going to kill the streak <laughs> and, and, and confess to you that I did turn on Amazon, and I did watch Thursday Night Football. And did we enjoy the broadcast? Is, a is, bit? Is, is, it, it, like there's a tradition that just went out the window. I know. It's I need like sound effects and moment. sirens, <laughs> and this is like a serious thing that happened. It, it, you know, we, we always wondered like when would Amazon take over the world, right? <laughs> when they got you to watch Thursday Night this, Football. This is like the hell freezes over kind of moment <laughs> for society. That Amazon has now created something that apparently other networks couldn't do, which is they got good announcers. And more importantly, they actually got two teams that actually would be very good playing against each other two weeks in a row. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to lie to you. There are a couple clunkers later down in the schedule. The Jets do play the Jaguars on a Thursday night. See, but that's what there's, I expect. But there's that's a the lot. Night but there's a lot better matchups and and things that would be considered rivalry games. You know, you get the Seahawks against the Niners, and so even if they're not the best teams, there'll be a interest in the game. I enjoy the pairing of Herb Street and Michaels. Um, and I, I'm not Al Michaels is my favorite. I know you can't like Herb Street. I get it. I understand. It, no, no. It's just so we're clear. It's not that I can't like Herb Street. Okay. I don't like Herb. Street. I do. There's a big difference. I do. Why don't you? I do. I just don't. I mean, the Ohio State thing doesn't help his case. Okay. <laughs> I just happen to be good. I, I just don't. <laughs> I love how it's like, no, it's not what you think. But the Ohio State thing doesn't help his case it there. It doesn't help. I'm being honest. <laughs> I appreciate the honesty. All right, let's keep with the honesty. So did you, uh, what did you think of week one's NFL matchups? The Eagles survive in Detroit. The Giants go for how, how it. How did that happen? Let's let's talk about the Eagles first, which is, I guess, uh, painful. But what happened? They were blowing the doors off the place, and all of a sudden, you turn off the game and turn it back on. And well, they let them hang they win around. By three. They were up. They were up twenty-one to three, and then right. I mean, Detroit hung around and. I told the you Lions. all along. I told you all along. I thought they would win the game, but I did have questions about how the team might play in the first game. The offense looked really good, and and having a receiver like AJ Brown on the field is fun to watch. Well, except for Devontae Smith, it's not fun I, for. Him. I think that you're going to see a lot more Devontae Smith this week, and I think they're going to figure that out. But just to have somebody like that in on the field, the, the Eagles haven't had that in a long time out there. 
I mean, I've watched a lot of bad okay. wide receiver play. Like you're mm-hmm. a Giants fan, you've seen bad offensive line play. Like that's been your thing. You know the wide receiver trash cans blocking. For you the you know that's the, the wide receivers that we've touted out there in that position here in Philadelphia. So to mm-hmm. be able to see guys like we have out there, that was encouraging. The defense was concerning, but it's week one. Uh, I think it's going to be a tough matchup Monday night against the Vikings. It's going to be loud at that stadium. Uh, how um, much of a loss is it for, I know it's a deep defensive line, but to lose Barnett for the season. Look, it hurts. I mean, he's part of the rotation. I, you always joke because he's good for the dumb penalty that at the worst time, like that's mm-hmm. what he does, but he was an aggressive player who got after the quarterback. And in this rotation, they need that. Now I didn't understand you didn't have Davis on the field what for like 20 plays yet when he was in there they didn't run for anywhere they got like two yards of carry when he was out of the game they got 10 yards of carry and that was the most concerning thing is last year this team had trouble tackling this year right. this team started with trouble tackling <laughs> and it might be that they didn't tackle much in the preseason or in training camp but you know, is this the new NFL? Like weeks one through four are our training camp now where they learn to tackle again and we see all these injuries because guys well, didn't actually you, play. Ta- tackling doesn't get better in this league after <laughs> after the fourth week. People don't no longer think they have arms on defense. Well, look, I mean, apparently the Eagles are like the favorite in the East now after the disaster in Dallas that happened. I actually thought the Giants played well, though. I mean, for you. Saquon Barkley. He looked MB- like the old MB- Saquon. MB- he, yeah. he looked really Brian Dable coach of the year. There you go. Uh, is that what I texted you right, right afterwards? You, you he, did. I, I did. I suspected there was a hint of sarcasm. Look, I will that. say this though. When Andy Reed came here to coach in the early two thousands, they had the pickle juice game. They went for the onside kicks. They went for it. He instilled <laughs> a mentality with this team. I thought for a guy that's coming in, trying to turn around a culture there, Dable showing faith in his guys, giving it to Saquon, his workhorse, and going for it on, on for the two-point conversion winning that game, huge for the long-term building of that team. I mean, not well, what I want to see as an Eagles fan, but, you he, know. He certainly, compared to some of the other first, uh, first-year first coaches, showed himself to do well. I mean, if you're Nathaniel Hackett. Yeah, that wasn't a best. Uh, <laughs> I still don't understand why they let the clock run down so much. I'm not sure what happened there. The best, the best was Russell Wilson's evolving theories of what happened. He was for it at the, first. Yeah, he was for it before he was against it. Yes. Like, like at first, he's like, "Oh, I didn't have any problem with it." Now all of a sudden, he's saying, "Well, I was at the line, ready to call a play, and and I thought I was going to call a play, and I was ready to go. Like, what happened? Is he? Is this the slow throwing somebody under a bus? Did, did you happen to watch? Any, we'll get to Dallas in a sec. Did you happen to watch any of the? Command, we have to any of the Commanders game, the Carson Wentz. Uh, no, it was the full Carson Wentz experience. Didn't, didn't they play the Colts? No, they didn't. Play oh, that's the, is that this week that they play? Is, is this, this week, week they the played the Lions? They played the Lions this week. They didn't play oh, the Colts okay. last week, but they won last week. And it was literally the full Carson Wentz experience there from the good, the bad, the ugly. It's just, it's going to be interesting to watch. So the Eagles play uh, the Vikings this Monday night, and then they play the commanders and Carson Wentz the week after 
they will get Dallas potentially without Dak Prescott. Now, let's be honest. Well, not according to Jerry Jones. It's going to be a miracle, and he's going to be dancing around playing next week, even though he had surgery on his thumb and his stitches in it. Can I just say, he had nobody to throw the ball to, and they looked terrible before he left the game. Mm -hmm. But the injury definitely doesn't help them. I mean, I'm not going to shed a tear or anything for Dallas have Cooper Rush. struggling. What? It's not, he's not the best quarterback going out there? He is. I, but you know what's going to happen now? The Eagles are going to like lose to him because, <laughs> you know. It's, the, Eagle, the Eagles are not losing to the Cowboys. No. You, I, you really think that they're losing? Even, no, I Even don't. if Dak Prescott comes back and he is, plays perfectly, they, they, they're not that good. I don't. Cowboys just are not that good. And by, by the way, I, I told you, you said, you asked how I felt about the Eagles for the first game. And I said, I think they'll win, but I don't think, like, I think it'll be close. It was exactly what I thought it would be, the roller coaster of a game that you told me not to ride. It should not have been a roller coaster of a game. It's the Lions. But it's I don't think it's that it's surprising. The Lions. That it was. But the Lions actually prepared in the preseason. The Eagles okay. prepped in the in the room getting rid of getting ready with their plays. They they didn't ne tackle. Next out of thing the field. you're gonna tell me is that the look, the Lions are favored in the game this week. Well, they're playing the commanders. <laughs> I know, but this is the first time the Lions have been favored in like over twenty games. Like well, we'll it's see. against the commanders. That's my point. Like th there is no reason that see that can, if, if I'm an Eagles fan, what concerns me is that the mentality wasn't once you get them down, step on their throat and finish them off. That no. was that the Eagles did not do that. No. And, and look, you had you the have out there. You had the, the back-to-back -back big plays where score the touchdown to go ahead Get the interception return for a touchdown, which they didn't have those big plays last year. But at the same time, they didn't get that much pressure on Detroit. And they certainly didn't clog up the holes and tackle when, when DeAndre Swift was rushing through the line. I mean, they made him look like an all-pro running back out there in the first week. Hey, before we even leave football, and I don't know if you have any more football talk. We certainly have college football. We, we have plenty talk to about. talk about. But, you know, we didn't tease at the top of the show, and we should tease it at the top of the show, or at least now, that we're going to have Buzz Bissinger on later. Yes. And, and, and to talk about an incredible football game. It just happened to take place 70 years ago, 80 years ago. But I think that, you know, people should know, hang in there, because we're going to have a really good interview with Buzz Bissinger. Well, let's, let's go to our college football talk real fast, and then let's go to what was a bunch of college players, all-stars, potential NFL players, future NFL players playing during their service in one of the most trying times. We'll get to that book in a few minutes. Jeff, um, were you nervous for Michigan against Hawaii last week? Terrified. <laughs> Terrified. <laughs> but this, this, once again, if I, if I can have a minute to complain about the, the awe-inspiring Jim Harbaugh, who please go away at this point. Hey, Jim Harbaugh had two of the worst teams in the country that they were playing against in the first two weeks. He could not decide which quarterback would be his starting quarterback. So he decided to give against two crappy teams. He decided to give one a start the first week, which was the guy who was quarterback last year. And then the guy who, who should be the quarterback, the second game, he came in and went 11 for 12. And the one that was incomplete was a drop pass <laughs> and then harbaugh announced after the game that after two crappy games hawaii might be the worst team in all of college football this year that he was giving the job to jj mccarthy and then oddly as a guy who follows odds in vegas which you are 
J.J. McCarthy is now the fifth most likely person to win the Heisman, according to Vegas. I enjoy... So, so what exactly was Harbaugh doing other than he didn't want to be the guy to say, last year, this guy brought me to the semifinals, even though he was a game manager. And you have this potentially star, huge upside game. And he didn't want to be able to just say, I'm the boss. And I decided this guy's just better. I think he really just wanted to piss you off. Well, I'll be there in two weeks to, to see to see them play their first. Speaking game. of good coaching moves, um, I enjoyed the attempt by Nebraska to bury the news they were firing their coach at one p.m. at one p.m. during NFL Sunday kickoff. Oh, by the way, his buyout is fifteen million dollars. He never should have been brought back this season to start the season. And how could wait? How could you not bring him back? So here, here's what we know about because he was Frost. terrible last season. Oh, hold on, here's what we know about Scott Frost. While he was at UCF, he won a national championship. It wasn't a real national championship, but they declared <laughs> You're never going to forget that. The rings. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so after declaring We did shows about that <laughs> national championship that exactly. they said they won that you didn't believe they did. So they bring him back, pay him a boatload of money, and Nebraska has been as much of an afterthought as possible. <laughs> and 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 Nebraska wants to blame him, but if you remember during the pandemic, when nobody else thought it would be a good idea to play in the Big Ten, Nebraska was looking to play secret <laughs> games with the SEC. Yeah, they decided to move on. And then is, Rutgers... Is, is there a school in the country that has fallen farther no. than Nebraska from their the, their glory days? The Tom Osborne now. days of Nebraska, you know, the early 90s against Miami, those national title games, they are far, far from that team. Yeah, even, even though I will tell you that the last Tom Osborne shared national championship was not a shared national championship. Of course it was not. I'm sure that Michigan right. should have had the whole thing. Rutgers will be in Philly this weekend playing at the link against Temple. Who you got? I think Rutgers wins it. They're 2-0. Look I, I at mean, you, Mr. Confident. They're, they're playing good football against, you know, they pulled it out against Boston College. They beat up the team they were supposed to beat up. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Look, I'm a Rutgers fan. I don't get overly excited about things until it happens because it just set myself up for disappointment. So, so which one of us has tickets to a Rutgers football game this year? You, not me. That's what I thought. Yeah, and, that, and that's not surprising in the least. To anybody who's listening to the show. I fully expect to be texting you during To anyone who has listened to this show ever, <laughs> it is the least surprising thing that the Rutgers grad does not have Rutgers tickets, yet the Michigan grad will be going to another Rutgers game this year. Against Michigan. Of course, of course. <laughs> I just hope that it doesn't turn into last time. Last time was when it was like 73 to nothing, and I got texts. No, it was 77 you. to nothing. That was that was several times. And, and I got texts from you yeah. relentlessly throughout the game because the ESPN score alerts weren't enough every couple seconds. The Jeff Cohen text updates that accompanied them definitely made it better. Well, to, to, be, to be fair, the, the normal updates that you were getting are just, uh, you know, an objective. There was no Color. of the game yes. there was no color commentary yes. as, as i was willing to provide you. you were as the fans in the stadium which weren't many from Rutgers to begin slowly mm -hmm. filtered out at the beginning of i don't know the first quarter you continued to provide updates on how many people were there watching the game for me and i appreciated that hey and so, since we like to talk about money with football should, should we talk about brett Favre? Ah, uh, 
you know, I brought this up a few weeks ago, and I didn't know where to go with it. And but Brett Favre, Favre was listening and decided that he would provide you with some fodder. You know who did it, actually? His biographer, Jeff Perlman, 10-time New York Times best-selling author who wrote his biography, posted a thread. Bro, bro, Favre's biography. Favre's biography posted a thread on Twitter blasting Favre in light of the allegations that he took welfare funds for a volleyball center at the University of Mississippi where his daughter played volleyball helped by the former governor, Phil Bryant, and Jeff Perlman urged people not to buy his book. <laughs> Your reaction, Jeff? Was it $5 million? Yes. Is that what I read? For the poorest, one of the poorest states in the country. Yes. So that was supposed the, to go poorest... to the neediest people that there are in the state, in the poorest state. Isn't Mississippi the state where they have problems getting clean water now? Yes. Okay, but that might Brett have helped. Fa but Brett Favre's daughter needed how much money for volleyball? Five million. Okay. Yeah, it's. I don't really need to comment on it. Do I? <laughs> it's but, like doesn't it kind of speak for it's like we've had a lot of these over the last few years that like the people speaking it's enough. Like I, I'm just saying, originally you can't say anything. Originally, it was a public relations problem for him return the money, whatever. Now, like, he seems to be on text messages and was involved with this. And these are federal funds. You can't defraud the government by didn't using... He a, didn't he have a speaking fee issue, too? That he, well, he got paid to speak, but never spoke. Right. He was paid $2 million for speeches, but ne one or $2 million for speeches, but and never gave any speeches. And if you've heard him speak, that it's actually a benefit to pay him not to talk. <laughs> Look at you taking <laughs> shots there. Like let's let's leave you the. Think we'll still, you think we'll still be seeing him on commercials for uh, knee ointment creams or whatever it is he's doing these days? No, look, if I were him, I'd lay pretty low, like right now. I mean, I, it seems like there's a lot of attention on this, and it's not. There are stories that come up in the news cycle that go away quickly. This is the kind of thing that has all the sensational pieces that make it not go away. Famous people, elected officials perceived doing wrong with funds that were supposed to go and help people mm -hmm. that really needed it. That's the kind of so, thing that hangs around. I sadly, I don't think that anybody has the attention span for it to hang around. Well, you just, you just hope that the money gets back in the hands of the people that needed it. Look, let, let's talk about attention span. Okay. Let's, let's leave the, the less, let's, <laughs> let's leave the less serious part of our conversation here. And, and let's get to our conversation with Buzz Bissinger. Jeff, you found this book and, and brought it to us when it was coming out. So I'll let you introduce it before we go to our interview with Buzz. Look, it's, it's, a, it's a story about the Marines in World War II and, and just having a respite in the middle of a war um, to play football and drink beer and hang out with, with your, your comrades. And the story is, it's not, it's not fiction. You, when you read this, you'll read it as if it's this fictional story and this is real. And this this book is part of our history and part of the military's history. And anybody who's interested in that and people that even aren't, just go out and buy, buy this book because it is, it's just an incredible story. Let's go to our conversation with Buzz and we'll come back and talk about it. Excited to welcome Pulitzer Prize winning author Buzz Bissinger to the show. Buzz, congratulations on the new book, The Mosquito Bowl, A Game of Life and Death in World War II. And thanks for the time. 
Hey, it's my pleasure. You know, I, I am a Philadelphian and I listen to you guys, so it's great to be on. Well, we really appreciate that. And Buzz, we did want to, before we actually get to the book, and the book is amazing, is we wanted to talk to you a little bit about your time in Philadelphia. From what I remember, you actually were doing what we're doing before we were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a brief run doing it on what was known as the Big Talker WPHT. And, you know, I really liked it. I mean, the microphone is addictive. It's a narcotic. But the, honestly, the problem was I had no, not worked in an office environment in 20 years. Back when I was in an office in a newsroom, you know, you got angry, you yelled, and then you made up the next day. It doesn't work that way anymore. I would get into sort of little verbal spats with people, and I get, kept getting reported to HR. So they fired me after six months. <laughs> but I liked it. I don't know if I was any good at it, but I, but I liked it. Well, you were, and not only were you good at that, you spent time uh, working for the Philadelphia Inquirer, a long time right. working for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Right. And, and, and we've seen that you've, you've said that you consider yourself a Philadelphian, even though you're from New York. What do you remember uh, most about your time in Philadelphia? Well, you know what? We still have a presence here. We go back and forth between the Northwest, and we do have an apartment in Philly, so we maintain roots. Uh, my kids are here. I love Philadelphia, and I have to say that it has gotten exponentially better. I went to school here in the 70s, and then came back, worked for the Enquirer in the 80s, and then came back in the early 90s to write a book, A Prayer for the City, about Ed Rendell when he was mayor. And the city was in the pits then. But with each step, the city has gotten better and better. It's gotten more and more lively. I know there's a crime issue, but I see kids in the street when I say kids, you know, college graduates. You never saw that in Philadelphia. And I think more and more people are realizing, look at the quality of life I can have in Philly versus the quality of life I can have in New York. Because for a young person graduating, there is no quality of life in New York. You're with four other people in a one-bedroom apartment. So I, I, I love the city. I, I follow the sports. Um, I think the Eagles actually could be really good this year. I worry about the Sixers and the, and the blend of uh, Maxi and Harden because I think Maxi's too deferential. And, you know, the, the Sixers sort of eat too many of their young, and I just love him. The Phillies, I think they'll make the playoffs. They got rid of Joe Girardi, who I knew was a fraud. Um, so, you know, the city is still very, very much in my heart. Listen, by the way, I knew I grew up in New York, but I went to Penn at 18. I spent 35 years here. I'm a Philadelphian, okay? That's I swear. You feel, I don't know if you're a native, you Philadelphians are really hard on people who were not born here, but I consider myself a Philadelphian. And look, you, you definitely, you've embraced the city and while the mic may have given you fun, it's the pen that seems to have let you tell the story so many right. times. And with this That's one, here we are with this book that it interweaves military heroics with, with college football. And, and my understanding is this was five years in the making. How did you even find out about this story to begin to tell it? Well, you know, you're always looking for great ideas and they, they are ideas you think will work and they come sporadically. You know, uh, Friday Night Lights, I wrote when I was very young about high school football in Texas. It took off. And after that, I said, wow, how am I going to top this? It takes me five or six years to come up with another idea. The book's called The Mosquito Bowl. It's an actual game, uh, as close to the real thing as you could get, that took place on the Pacific island of Guadalcanal uh, with the 6th Division of the Marine Corps several months before they shipped out into the horror of Okinawa. There were two regiments of the 6th Division, the 4th and the 29th, that would argue constantly who would have the better football team if we played each other because they were loaded 
and I mean loaded with great college players, seven, seven captains from Notre Dame and Brown, players across the country. Most have been in D1 starting, three All-Americans, first round draft pick to second round draft picks loaded. And, fi- you know, finally, Marine says, you know, we don't argue. We fight it out. Let's play it. Let's play a game. Let's play against each other. Let's get it on. And it wasn't pickup. They built goalposts. They printed up programs. They printed up rosters. They had a PA system. They made a regulation field out of the, one of the parades grounds. Even then, there was no grass. So it was all dirt and coral. They broadcasted on the Mosquito Radio Network, and it became as the Mosquito Bowl. 1,100 Marines came. They were allowed to get drunk, which, of course, they did. They're Marines. And gamble, which they did. And it was three hours of getting away from the constant fear and constant thoughts in your head of, am I going to live? Am I going to die when I go into combat? And the upshot is of the 65 who played, many of them young officers, uh, 15 were later killed at Okinawa. So when I read about that, I said, this is a book. If I can get at it, this has all the elements you want of a book, a, a driving narrative, the ability to make characters come alive and then taking the reader from the beginning to the end to the, as I say, the uh, unimaginable horror of Okinawa. You know, the book reads like a, like almost like a fiction novel, but it is real. And, and when you're doing your research for a book like this, did you come across any letters or were you able to talk to anybody that really stuck up, stuck out as a reason to, to motivate you to write this book the right way? Well, I, I, I knew going in uh, that of the 65 players, only one was still alive. I knew that and I did interview him and he was great. But, you know, I kept saying, well, how am I going to get at this? How am I going to portray some of these guys who played in the game from beginning to end? How am I going to make the reader care about them? How am I going to show their heroism, their, their sense of duty, their willingness to sacrifice? And luckily, I did find several players who, whose families had kept everything. Wonderful letters home, letters back and forth, letters from mothers, letters from fiancés, report cards little drawings they did as kids. And then I said, all right, I, I can do it. I can, I can capture these guys uh, in a legitimate way. And many of the families were incredibly helpful. They wanted the story told because at the end, uh, it's, a, it's a story of great heroism, but um, heroism has a price. And the price for 15 of these good, and I call them men, they were really kids, basically. 18, the oldest was 25, but it's to, it's to honor their memory and also to remind people of what America, you know, we all say make America great again. Well, this was the peak of American greatness because of the unity. Everyone was in this together. Um, you know, as I, want, as I said, there is no red state and there is no blue state in a foxhole. It's men protecting each other and all those differences melt away. So we can bridge our differences if we want to. You know, you talk about the families wanting the story told. This one was personal for you, too. Your dad was a Marine at Okinawa. And can you talk more about how you learned about his service through this and how you were able to make the men come alive to tell this story? Well, I knew my dad had been a Marine. I knew he had been at Okinawa, but he never wanted to talk about it. He would joke about it a little bit, um, but you could tell he he just wasn't going to go there. And my mother recalls an incident. There was a family get together and the war came up and he had to leave the room. He had to go downstairs and smoke a cigarette. Obviously, like so many, uh, he saw things that were unspeakable. He wanted to get on with his life, but I knew nothing really. And in the course of working on the book early on, I said, well, you know, 
I don't even know what he did. I don't know what his rank was. I don't know what regiment he was in. Let's find out. And so I got his muster rolls. We have the same name. So it was almost like reading my name. And there is his name as a rifleman on the front lines in Okinawa. And this is really freaky. He was in one of the regiments that I'm writing about. He was in the 4th Regiment. I mean, for all I know, he was at this incredible game called the Mosquito Bowl, which was well known at the time. Knowing my father, he liked to drink, he liked to gamble, um, and he loved football. So, he, you know, the odds are he was there, and that kind of blew my mind. This is not a book about searching for your father, but it did put me over the top. I sort of said, I got to do this in his honor, basically. Well, you're talking about you talk about drinking and gambling. This game was not unlike any other football game. There was beer at this game. There was gambling at this game. And, and, there, and there were former All-Americans from Wisconsin, Brown, Notre Dame that were on this team. Can Correct. you talk a little bit more about what you found out about how they were able to basically create a game that would have been something we'd all want to watch back here? Well, they were they were stationed at Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal was the training area uh, for the Sixth Marine Division. They were there for some of them had been there for almost six months. And you know, they're Marines. Marines want to get it on. If I I want to know, am I going to live or am I going to die? It's as simple as that. What I don't want to do is to sit around and think about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to imagine the worst. And, you know, as part of uh, the training, they did have, they had fields. They had a lot of volleyball fields. They had baseball fields. Uh, but when they started arguing over who would have the better football team, the, the commanding general, Lemuel Shepard, said, let's do it. It'll be great for morale. It'll give guys a diversion. And you're right. I mean, this game was the forerunner to modern games. Gambling, booze. And, you know, beating the crap out of each other, which they did for three joyous hours. They were allowed to really be boys again. They were allowed to do something they loved that had been a part of their lives. And then four months later, uh, they're on a transport ship going into the teeth of hell, which was Okinawa. Just to put it in quick perspective, at Okinawa, 240,000 people died in 82 days. I mean, think about that. That's 3,000 a day. That's Americans, that's Japanese, and that's civilians. 240,000. I've read histories saying it was the seventh bloodiest battle of all time. And there may be more and more who died, and the casualty rate was well over 50%. And I think the Truman was so horrified by the casualty rate because the Japanese only goal was to kill as many Americans possible in the vain hope that we would come to the table and negotiate. But I believe this was the reason, primary reason Truman dropped the bomb. He said to himself, I'm not going to lose another American kid on foreign soil because of the shock of what happened uh, at Okinawa. And, you know, that's one of the reasons these 15 men gave up their lives for, you know, the cause of our freedoms. You know, it's it's an interesting contrast because on the one hand, <clears throat> you're I saw you say you're aiming to create a portrait of America in the process of losing its innocence right. and you're doing it through the guise of these young men who are who don't have cleats and are trying to find shoes in a uniform, who play on a coral football field and end up bloody in a 0-0 tie, just taking a break from the horror that they may be facing. Can you talk about how important this respite was for them these couple hours? Well, you know, it was a couple hours, but there was there was a buildup. Everyone started talking it. It got exciting. You know, you have guys, they're a little bit rusty. 
but they can get after it. They can still play football. And as I say, you know, you had all Americans on each side in each regiment. Uh, you had captains from, as I said, Notre Dame, Brown, California, Texas Christian. Um, so there was excitement. Everyone knew who these guys were before they, they got to Guadalcanal. I mean, Tony Bukovich was an All-American from Purdue. Dave Schreiner was a two-time All-American from Wisconsin. John McLowry uh, had been a captain at Brown back in the days, believe it or not, when um, East Coast football was really good. Um, and he started with the New York Giants. So you had all these players. And so there was a lot of anticipation. They actually had a few exhibitions, but they drew up plays. And they took it very seriously. They wanted to make it into a spectacle, which is why they did all these things, the goalposts, the marching bands. They really wanted to make it something special, something resonant. And I was lucky people kept the programs. And so that's how I could see the names uh, on the rosters. But even though it was only a few hours, it did resonate because it was a beautiful date. It was Christmas Eve of 1944. So it was a way of bringing Christmas home to guys who were several thousand miles away from home. And the game was part of that. This was bringing a little bit of America to a little island in the middle of nowhere. In an interview, I saw you were asked, why should people care? Uh, which I found an interesting question somebody should ask you. But it, you said it's a story of poignancy, loss, bravery, and even a love story. Everyone's flawed, but the men who served and died or lived through Okinawa were magnificent men from time and place so far away that we're at now that it can make you cry. Can you talk more about those men and tell people why they should care about this book? Well, obviously, as a writer, I mean, that's always your hope. That's always your hope, and that's always the doubt. Will they connect? Will they read? And for me, the, the key then was to make them come alive. And, you know, they all came from different backgrounds, different backgrounds in America, and that was an appeal to me, too. So you use the letters, you use the paper trail, you use documents, you use whatever you can to uplift them. So you have Dave Schreiner. Um, a farm boy from Lancaster, Wisconsin, although uh, his family was wealthy, they were merchants. Um, you know, his worst language was golly gee whiz. I mean, the worst thing he did as a kid was he played hooky one day to go trout fishing with his friends. The perfect All-American, really perfect, handsome, 6'2", shy, self-effacing, Tony Bukovich, um, the son of a father who had come from Croatia where he had experienced a tremendous amount of racism, which is what America often shows, often shows all the time towards new immigrants. Um, Tony was a great football and baseball player, and he got to college because of his prowess in sports and had two other brothers who made it to college as well because of uh, football. You have Bob Bauman, who was a teammate of Shriners, and he was the loosest of the bunch. He liked to have fun. He liked to drink beer. He liked women. He and Shriner were best friends, so they really played off. Um, each other. And then you had George Murphy, who was the captain of, of Notre Dame. And what I found is they were very self-effacing. They were very modest men. They almost never talked about their accolades to the point where they knew who they were. A lot of people knew who they were, but George Murphy's tent mate had no idea that he was the captain of Notre Dame because he never talked about it. But, you know, they, they had girlfriends, Schreiner had a fiance he fell madly in love with. His letters are filled, filled with just sort of simple poignancy, wanting to reassure his mother and his fiance that he would be okay, that he would be all right, and please not 
worry. And I was really struck by, you know, how beautiful that was. And Schreiner saying one point to his fiance Odette, I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting to get home, to be with you. And that's all I care about. And, you know, when I read that, I, I got choked up. I mean, I wrote the book with a little picture of Dave Schreiner next to me as motivation to remember why am I writing this? I'm writing this because these men, their memories need to be honored. And, you know, I would look at it from time to time and almost in a sense, I would see my dad because my dad looked like these guys. My dad was 19. And, you know, I would get choked up and say, I hope at the end I have honored these guys. I hope at the end the reader has fallen in love with them and cares about them and connects with them and really wants to know what happens to them on the high one of the Okinawa. Buzz, this is a this is a history book for a lot of people and people who love American history and, and for people who don't, they should they should learn about this through this history. Did you see yourself as a historian as you were writing this? And did you as you were writing this, did you talk to people within the military that wanted this story to be out for those that, that never heard the story before? I became a historian, although I certainly was not. My books had elements of history, but they were all, you know, immersion journalism. I was there. I was there for Friday Night Lights. I witnessed the team as it played and the season unfolded. I was there for the book I wrote about Mayor Ed Rendell, A Prayer for the City. I was able to be with him for four years in his first term. Um, I was there with Tony LaRussa when he was managing the Cardinals, and I wrote the book uh, Three Nights in August. I wasn't there for any of this, and that requires a whole new set of skills, a, a lot of research, learning how to write about history, both with authority, but with synthesis, so the pages don't um, you know, go on forever. And as I say, I got lucky. I mean, the letters sealed the deal. There were hundreds of them, and that's when I realized uh, I would be able to to I hope, and I think I did succeed to make these men come alive. I believe this is my best book. How it sells, how it doesn't sell, is in the hands of the gods. But I think it's my most complex book. And the stakes here are way beyond high school football. The stakes here are, you know, it's life and death. And in war, life and death, are it's a matter of luck, being in the wrong place at the right time or the right place um, at the wrong time. And that was wincing to me, the circumstances under which some of these men did not survive. And questionable patrols, uh, where they really were exposed. But at the bottom line is, we, these men felt we are doing our duty and doing your duty is to take orders and do things uh, without question. There was no sense of, I'm not gonna wear a mask in a foxhole, you did what you were told and there was a commonality. You were all in it together of every socioeconomic stripe, which to me makes the book all the more powerful. We talk about let's make America great and all that, but this was an America in unity, uh, regardless of race, regardless of gender. We were together. And I think the book shows what can happen when America is together. As somebody who loves American history and books about it, this is one of your best books. But before we let you go, I wanted to talk to you. Obviously, you've written Friday Night Lights, but I wanted to just talk to you because it's in the news today. Uh, LeBron James, you spent a lot of time with LeBron James writing Shooting Stars. Mm -hmm. Could you tell, and about his high school years, could you tell from your time with LeBron close to two decades ago now that he was going to be using his platform the way that he is, that he would be such an outspoken leader in the community? You know, absolutely not. And that was certainly not the fault of LeBron. I forget how old he was when we did this, but he was young. He was still 
still developing. I, I think he was still with the Cavaliers, and you know, a lot of people didn't like him. They thought he was a punk because of the way he supposedly conducted himself in high school, and you know, being named chosen one by Sports Illustrated when he was 15. So I think his head was really not into the book. Now, it was an ensemble piece about five kids, including LeBron, who stayed together for the duration of, of high school to become a team and ultimately state champion. But his heart wasn't in it. And, you know, that hurts any book when your main subject is really not uh, into it. Watching LeBron evolve, particularly after the debacle that I'm taking my talents to North Beach, where he won't admit it, but he learned a lot. And he actually did admit it. I think LeBron has become amazing spokesman. He has used his platform. Uh, he has realized that, you know, I actually do occupy a pivotal role in society as, a, as an important figure and people will listen. So I think um, it's been great. By the way, there's a movie coming out based on the book, um, oh. but I don't get any money, so I don't care. We'll still plug it for you. Don't worry. You know, you, there you, go. you talk about, I mean, it's being shot. You talk about him having his heart in it. You definitely had your heart in this book. You have your heart in all the books you write, but we wish you right. the best of luck with this one. The book is the mosquito bowl, a game of life and death in world war two, a very poignant read. Buzz, thanks for giving us some time. We wish you the best of luck with the book and we hope we get to talk to you again one day. Excellent. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Jeff, that was a pretty powerful conversation with Buzz. And the way that he was able to tell that story, I was not able to get through that book in, in one sitting. And look, I have a hard time getting through any book in one sitting. Yeah, I was going to say, do you often get through books in one sitting? It wasn't because I didn't have the attention span to sit there. It was so gripping in terms of how he made you feel like you were there, like you felt like what those men were going through and that moment in time. And it was just so well done. I was, I was really impressed by it. I'm glad we got time with him. Thanks. Yeah, me too. I mean, and, and, you know, Buzz, Buzz is an accomplished writer, obviously. I mean, most people know him through Friday night lights, but, you know, as we mentioned to him at the end of the interview, he wrote a book with uh, and about LeBron James and, and talked about, the evolution of, of LeBron James as far as not just an athlete, but as, as a voice of society and, and what he is doing. And, and he is out there speaking, and he's out there speaking this week. Well, let's talk about what he's speaking about. So we've talked in the past. There was an investigation into Sun's uh, governor, not owner, right? They're not owners anymore, especially right. since this deals with racism. That does matter. Uh, the NBA announced Tuesday it suspended Phoenix Suns Governor Robert Sarver for a year and fined him $10 million after verifying allegations of racism, sexism, and other workplace violations. Uh, it included use of racially insensitive language, unequal treatment of female employees, sex-related statements and conduct, and harsh treatments of employees that on occasion constituted bullying. He repeated the N-word when recounting statements of others on at least five occasions. Jeff, uh, and, and you're leaving. Wasn't there also an issue about that people were intimidated from going to HR? Yeah, and, I, I mean that that that's in and of itself is is chilling if it's true. But uh, all of these allegations together, if the if the NBA feels that he's it's that there was enough there that there's a finding that he should be suspended from being at the team that he governs, and that that he should pay $10 million, then it should be more. Adam Silver says they can't do more. And right. I don't understand it. 
Uh, I do. I mean, I know you do, but it's not good business to not be able to do more, but tell us why it's not, it's, it's not good business except for the people that I'm going to use own the teams because they all want to make sure that if they do something wrong, that nobody can punish them. So it's, everybody is out for their own interest. People always forget that when a sport, uh, a league is not in and of itself a business. It's a conglomerate of different businesses. And like each one is owned separately and each one has their own interest in addition to the league interest. So, and though the people that own those teams, we see it more in the NFL, want to protect their own ability to be bad or do things the way that they want to do. So they don't want to give, in this case, Adam Silver, the authority to say, you have to sell a team. Well, in the NBA's case, we've talked about the power that the players have. And we yeah, asked well, Buzz. We, had Don, we have the Donald Sterling example. Well, and we asked Buzz about LeBron using his voice. And we have seen LeBron and Chris Paul so far speak out to voice their displeasure, saying they got it wrong. It's not enough. In the media, you've seen reporters like David Aldridge say they got it wrong. And now vice chairman uh, of the Suns, John Najafi, who is one of their investors, said, I cannot in good judgment sit back and allow our children and future generations to think that this behavior is tolerated because of wealth and privilege. In accordance with my commitment to help eradicate any form of racism, sexism, and bias, I'm calling for the resignation of Robert Sarver. Do you think Robert Sarver resigns? Because Donald Sterling went because no. pressure was on Donald Sterling to go, not because the NBA forced him out. So is he going to survive this? Because remember, this isn't just the Suns. This is the Mercury. He's involved in other areas in Phoenix. There's a lot of stuff. Does, does he look like the kind of guy that's going to go quietly? No. Apparently, he didn't. He disputes the $10 million fine and one-year suspension. Right. He doesn't think uh, that he what should What I don't understand is that. some people say he he's taking responsibility. He's not no, taking, he's responsibility, not taking responsibility. He's 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 saying I accept the punishment. He's saying that out out loud even though he fought it apparently and he's not acknowledging that the things that he did were meant the way that he's saying that the NBA took it. Yeah. That that that's the equivalent of saying I'm sorry if you were offended. Well, and along those lines the NBA is also compelling the Suns and Mercury to make changes, including taking workplace policy recommendations from an outside firm, but not getting rid of the guy who oversees the whole thing. So yeah. what? Like it's, like, it's the Daniel Snyder it, thing it, all over again. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and these sports continue to be behind in the way that they handle this. And the fact is their players are not their property. You can't bully your employees. You can't harass other people and touch them and demean them. You yes, cannot, you can. Well, you shouldn't be able to. You shouldn't be able there to. There are people that are charged criminally for those things. This guy's getting a slap on the wrist and he's upset he can't sit courtside at the stadium and they took $10 million away, which is basically a tip that he lives someplace sometimes. Right. That's so not he gets a, to take, an he gets actual to take, penalty. He gets to take a year off and go on his yacht or whatever he wants to do and he's still going to continue to make profits off of this unless we have the Donald Sterling issue come up again, which is where more people, including the players, including sponsors, become more vocal about this. And as much as LeBron 
may have been one of the first people to speak out. I actually think the person who may be the impetus for getting rid of him will be Chris Paul. I agree because of his role with the Players Association. His role with the Players Association and the fact that he is the leader of that very team. Yes. And the other question is whether or not the coach is going to come out. The coach has... It has a he's a he's a kind of a quiet coach, but he's a very well respected coach. And so far, he has not come out and said, as far as I know, come out and said he needs to go. What would happen to the NBA if the players said they won't play for an owner that did that? Like, what would happen in that situation? You would have a standoff, I think, and because Sarver, I don't think is going to go quietly. I mean, hopefully, he he says, you know what, I can sell the team, I can make billions, and and. If, if that's what if if I were in his shoes, I wouldn't have acted like this. But <laughs> if, I, if I were in his shoes, that's what I would do at this point because I don't. I, this I don't think is going to go away. I think that kind of far of kind of stuff goes away unless he gets you know convicted. But with this, this is this is an issue that should not, and I don't think will go away soon. I think this is going to continue to be an issue, and the Suns are going to get a lot of pressure. But it's it's not going to be just the players. It's going to be whether the players get to the sponsors. And if sponsors start saying something and pulling their money, that's when you're going to have the real pressure on him. Because we know, unfortunately, that's where the pressure comes from. The pressure comes from money. Oh, yeah. It's all, it's all about that. And look, on a, on a less serious investigative level, is the Sixers investigation still ongoing with the NBA, Jeff? They have to investigate. I, I, I mean... Look, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Draft picks. Okay, well, we've already seen that. They already traded really... away half of them. Exactly. What are you going to do? You're going to slap them on the wrist for in 2037? Like, they're, what are you going to do? They're going to make Doc play young players. Maybe that's... they'll make Doc play. <laughs> that's going to be that's gonna be the punishment. <laughs> Let's leave the basketball I mean, there. The, the average age of the Sixers team is going up so high. Doc playing? Wouldn't raise the age that much. No, not really anymore. <laughs> we we shortchanged the union last week, and and we're missing out on a team that's on a dominant run with their win against Orlando at home last week. They're eleven two and zero since July eighth. In that time, they've outscored opponents forty six to nine. Only ten other teams in all of MLS have forty six goals all year long, Jeff. And, and don't bury the lead. They haven't lost at home. No, this not entire season. They've won their last five matches by a combined margin of 23 to two. That 23 goals in that stretch is the most goals by any team in MLS history. Like you're, you're talking about a team that is regularly setting records and it's not just on offense. They're trying to have the fewest goals allowed in a season. They've allowed just 22 goals through 31 games. The record through 34 games is Kansas City's 27. The Union are giving up .71 goals a game. That's how good their defense and Andre Blake have been. And, I mean, this team just keeps rolling. And now, with LAFC stumbling, they're actually in first for the supporter shield. And pretty much close to clinching home field going through Subaru Park till at least the finals. Well, that's what that's what you care about. The supporter shield in and of itself already got one of those. That's not what you want at this point. You want a championship and you want a parade, hopefully down Broad Street. And and what we have seen, because we've talked about them all season, is early in the season, they were just ties, constant ties. They were not scoring a lot of goals. 
And they have brought a bunch, they, they have a core group in Bedoya and Elliot and Blake and a bunch of others. And they brought in this young group that's there, but the, the decisions and the people that they've brought in from outside are what's been incredible to watch how they've developed over the course of the season. And again, I think that is credit to Curtin as well as the players and as well as the front office. But you have Gazdog and you have uh, Ure, you, you have it, and Carranza, you have a group of guys that have just kind of meshed as the season got, went on, not to the point that they're scoring like an extra goal a game. You, you, you have them scoring ridiculous amounts of goals that, that they're scoring more goals than the Cowboys score points in a football game. That was my favorite. <laughs> I know. And that came from the Union Twitter account, which is undefeated. Kudos, kudos to them. I, I am so glad that you brought that up. I sent that to you and you didn't respond to me. And I didn't know if it was one of those, oh, I can't believe he sent me that. <laughs> but I got a huge kick out of that. I usually one. don't read anything that has cowboys in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, we got a couple minutes left. Uh, last week we had Chris Clary on to talk some tennis. We had him on the wrong week. Well, no, no. Roger Federer rudely didn't retire during the U.S. Open so that we could have the guy who wrote the book on Roger Federer to talk about him, we just had him to talk about the rest of the U.S. Open. We are seeing a changing of the guard in tennis. Players like Serena and Roger, who have dominated for decades now, stepping off of the main stage. Younger players who played in the finals and got attention. I mean, if you look at the numbers from the U.S. Open, the attendance was up. They had almost three quarters of a million people come watch tennis in person for the first time all 23,859 seats in the main stadium were sold for each day and night session and the ratings were up 50% from last year for the tournament look at you getting in some ratings talk right before we're done well look I, I think that the the health of the sport is shown by how many people pay attention to it in whatever medium it whoa, is whoa, whoa whoa but see I don't think you can tell that from this year's US Open I said because the large part of those ratings were the swan song of Serena. They were, but in the Tiafo Alcaraz match, they averaged 2.9 million viewers in the semifinals. So if you can have the key was well, that they had Americans but, playing well in this tournament. That's why the ratings were so high and the attendance was so high. Well, if we're being you, honest, you, you hope that happens. The question is, is if, if if people weren't watching at the beginning because of Serena, would they ever have even noticed whether all of these other things were happening? Next year is when you'll find out whether or not all of the young players are able to carry their own weight as opposed to picking up the mantle in the middle of a tournament. Jeff, two minutes left for you to crush my hopes about the Phillies. They're over 80. They're at 80 wins now for the season already. They... Because Milwaukee and San Diego have struggled, they seem to be in a good place as of this moment. They've used 55 players so far this season. Hoskins got hit on the hand the other night, no break. Sosa left last night's game. Dominguez came back. I enjoyed your text last night when Zach Eflin came out of the bullpen. 
That was special. Still no Wheeler yet. Uh, how should I feel about the Phillies? My concern level, excitement level, etc. You want me to just reiterate what I said last week? Come I, it's on, the let same me thing. enjoy, man. I I think they're going to make the playoffs. I don't think they're going to get. I like. I just got my season ticket invoice, and, and and I'm sitting there going, why would I? Why are they asking me for money for the first round? There's a lot like, of there's not, <laughs> There is no first round here. Anymore. There, there's going to be no first round here, so I don't understand that. And I think the next week and a half is really going to tell you a lot because they're playing the Braves, I think, seven times over the next week and a half. I'll tell you, there's a lot of tickets available for next weekend when they're home against the Braves. I'm probably going to take the boys because Adam has, the little one, has really gotten into the Fanatic on TV. Good news for you. Dave I Raymond, have... friend, friend of the Fanatic, will be very excited at how excited my two-and-a-half-year-old gets. But they keep asking me to take them to a baseball game, and so I was looking – some of the lower level tickets are expensive, but there's a lot of seats available to go if well, you want to go see baseball. I, I have two for next weekend, and I can't use them because I'll be in Ann Arbor. So. You want me to choose a child to bring? You think that's going to sure. work out well? Go ahead, Solomon. You figure that out. Okay, you can explain that to them. Any <laughs> final words before you head off to Ann Arbor or wherever? I want to see you make that cho- that Sophie's choice of who goes to the the Billy's game. No, thank you. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains, and the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative (ELEC) puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work.